St. Augustine once said, it's more of a prayer, he prayed, command what thou will, and give what thou commands. Lord, you are sovereign, in other words, and you ought to be able to command your people. But as you command your people, my prayer is that you would give me what I need in order to be able to do what you've called me to do. Someone else said it this way. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He doesn't call those who've already made it. He doesn't ask those who are perfected. But rather, he calls us to serve. And he qualifies us. He gives us what we need. He makes us adequate. He provides so that we can do what he's called us to do. There are a myriad of things that God has called us to do. There is, however, one thing that is central to who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. Paul summarized this truth at the end of chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians when he said, To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, he says. We exist. The church exists to bring glory to God. That's why we're here. That is why God has poured out, as we sang earlier, and as we learned from chapter 1 of Ephesians, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the church. That's why, as we've been saying for a number of weeks now, God's power is not indiscriminately at work everywhere in the world, but it's where? His power is at work here. His power is at work in the church. If someone were to ask you, what in the world is God doing? You can confidently answer the question as you read the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. You can confidently answer the question that God is at work building his church. His power, his energy, his resources are all being poured out here. We exist for his glory. If that's true, how do we do that? How do we live for his glory? Well, if the letter of the Ephesians were the only text that we had as a church, the answer would be pretty clear. We bring glory to God through our unity as a church. A unified group of people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, united in one spirit under one heavenly father who is over all. The church in all of its messy diversity, united in him, brings him glory in the way that no other entity in existence can. 
In fact, God even uses us in the process of bringing together people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We are the means by which God builds his church. We are commanded to make disciples of all nations. Yes, Matthew 28. Go therefore, Jesus said, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all of what I have commanded you, and I am with you always. So this group of dirty, rotten, stinking sinners who've all been brought together as messy and as as stinky and as smelly and as foolish as we can be sometimes. This group of people whom God has brought together, he uses to bring other people into the fold. And them being together and unified of one accord and together pursuing his glory, together seeking to honor him, shines forth for the praise of his glorious grace, Paul says. We are called, therefore, as we mentioned last week, not to manufacture unity, but rather to preserve it. God is the one who brings us together. And so the call that we have is to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. Summarize this and make it a little more personal. We, as the Catonsville Baptist Church, exist to preserve the unity of the spirit as we make disciples for the glory of God. That's why we're here. That's why the Catonsville Baptist Church exists. We exist to preserve the unity of the spirit as we make disciples for the glory of God. There will be a quiz later, so you need to know that. (laughs) We're continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. We're at the point where Paul is calling the church to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He's calling the church to walk in a way that is, in other words, equivalent to our calling, adequately reflecting our calling. Over the course of the first three chapters, Paul has been building up to this point. And again, the primary aspect of the church's calling has to do with its unity. The unity of the church is what Jesus himself prayed for before his death. John 15 and John 17, we looked at that before. It is also the purpose for which Jesus died, Ephesians 2, 14 and 16. We started in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. This is one unit. We started last week looking at verses 1 through 6 where we found the basis for our unity. The theological basis for our unity is ultimately the unity and diversity that exists in the Trinity, in the Godhead. God is one and yet exists in three persons in perfect harmony as he goes about his creative work, both in the beginning as well as his new creation, the church. All three members of the Trinity are engaged. All three are involved, but it is one work of the true and living God. Again, for that reason, we are exhorted to be diligent to preserve that unity. Chapter 4, verse 3. Okay, Paul, we get it. We're supposed to preserve unity, but how? How exactly do we do that? With what resources? I mean, have you seen the people in God's church? You know what we're working with, right? Well, again, God gives what he commands. He does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. Everything we need to accomplish the purposes 
that God desires for his church have already been given to his church. If we've been called to unity, then he's already given us what we need for unity. If verses 1 through 6 was the basis for our unity, I'll call verses 7 through 16 the blessing of our unity. Let's take a look at this section together. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, I'll read verses 1 through 16, and we'll focus in again starting in verse 7. I'll read the entire section for us this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host. He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is true. Your word sanctifies us. Speak, Lord, this morning, for your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be collected, be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, what is the blessing of our unity? The blessing of our unity is that Jesus Christ has gifted his church. Specifically, he has blessed every member of the church with a spiritual gift for the good of the whole church. There is unity, but as one author put it, not uniformity. There is unity and diversity intentionally built into the design of the church. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one body, one God and Father who is over all, but each one has been particularly gifted, or as Paul will say in verse 16, for the building up of itself in love. A brief outline of the section in verses 7 through 10. Jesus has given gifts to each 
member of the church for our unity. Verses 11 and 12, Jesus has given gifts to the whole church for our unity. In verses 13 through 16, ultimately, Jesus has given these gifts to be used by the church for its maturity. Again, so that we would be unified in him. Let's take a look at the first point, verses 7 through 10. Jesus has given gifts to each member of his church for our unity. Again, verses 7 through 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Well, it starts off with a, a but. The but is to remind us of where we've been. The first six verses of this section, again, was a de- declaration of the unity that we already have in the body of Christ. We're commanded to walk in this unity. We're commanded to pursue this unity. We ought to be carefully considering our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to be eager to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. This unity is a unity that reflects the unity and diversity in the Godhead. There's a unity that we ought to be zealous to protect. We are all one in Christ, but though we are unified, though a significant portion of the resources poured out in the body of Christ have been poured out on each of us, on all of us together, his power has also been poured out by measure to each one of us individually. I love this thing. It's my favorite. It really is. Now, before I get into what a special measure of grace is, I want to take a look at verses 8 through 10 because I think these verses can seem very strange at first glance. Now, I'm just going to summarize what's being said there. We could get into the weeds if you want to. I could I'll give you some additional reading on that later, but um, I just want to summarize what he's, what he's saying here. Take a look again at the text. Verses 8 through 10, what we have here is what looks like a quote from Psalm 68. And the idea in Psalm 68 is that of deliverance. God is portrayed as the victor over his enemies, and his enemies are really the ones who pay tribute to him. The tribute paid to a conquering king inevitably means greater blessing for his people. That's kind of the idea here. And thus... In our text, as Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, Jesus Christ is being portrayed as the conquering king. He is the victor, the one who has conquered his enemies, and he's proven that by his ascension. As he is the victor and is ascending on high, he led captive a host of those who were captive, held captive by his enemies. And instead of him being given gifts by others, his spoils are the people, and so he, in in turn, gives gifts to them. The discussion of descending and ascending is really all over the map interpretively. I think the best idea to understand what they mean by his ascending and descending is really that Jesus has 
you know, we understand what it means that he's ascended, but the fact that he's descended means that he is, is in reference to his incarnation when he came down initially. There's a lot more that we could say about that, but I think I'm going to move on. Christ gave gifts to the church in his ascension. That's really the, the whole idea. Another way of looking at this is, you know how Olympic runners, runners in the Olympic Games have a victory lap, and people around the stadium will often throw down gifts to the one who achieved the victory, right? They might throw flowers, they might throw teddy bears, those kinds of things. Those gifts are showered to the victor in his victory lap. In this case, Jesus is taking the victory lap, but he's the one who's showering his people with gifts. He's rejoicing over his victory, and he, in turn, pours out an additional measure of grace on his people as a gift. That's the language that he uses in verse 7. Look again at verse 7. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. In the original, the word one is placed out in front to emphasize the specificity of these gifts. These gifts, Jesus has handed out specifically to each one, each individual person. It says that he gave a measure of grace, a gift of grace. It is a measure of grace to each individual person within the body of Christ. Grace here is the same word for grace in Ephesians chapter 2. It's the word charis, if you're interested in that. We get our word charismatic from it. So yes, every one of us who are in Christ are charismatic Christians, whether you like that or not. But we often speak about grace in terms of the salvation event. We talk about it in terms of the process of our salvation when we came to faith in Christ, we say that this is all about the grace of God given to us. But the grace of God is so much more complex and abundant than that one moment in time. Again, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself, again, to the praise of of the glory of his grace. It was the grace of God that moved him from eternity past to conceive of a plan that included his choice of us and his adoption of us. A plan that involves us being set apart for his praise in the world. Ephesians 2, 4, also verses 5 and 8. There Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It certainly was the grace of God that moved the hand of God to make us alive together with Christ, to unite us with the person of Jesus, to give us new life in him, to forgive us of all of our transgressions, to wrap us up in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. By grace we have been saved. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing richness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Though we have experienced the grace of God in eternity past, the grace of God in this present day in our salvation, we have the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ to look forward to. There is more grace to be had that we haven't even experienced yet. I mean, that's what makes grace so amazing. 
has so many different aspects reaching from eternity past to eternity future and everything in between. Peter refers to the grace of God as the manifold grace of God. In other words, in our letter, Paul is saying that the same grace working out the plan of God for his glory to be made known in the church as he brings together people from every tribe and tongue and nation, this same power that is at work in the church today is portioned by measure to each individual person in the body of Christ. It is a measure of grace given as a gift to each member. This measure of grace that is given as a gift is what we typically refer to as a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is, as one said, a God-given ability to serve the body of Christ for its good. It's different than a natural talent, right? A natural talent is something that you can acquire by human means or something that you are inclined to do, a skill that you may have, whether believing or not. A spiritual gift is not a natural talent. It's not something that you are naturally able to do on your own. It's something that God enables you to do. The special measure of grace that he gives to each one of us when we believe there's not a second blessing. The special measure of grace that he gives to each one of us when we believe is all about his work in us. You've probably heard all kinds of things about spiritual gifts before. You've probably seen or taken some of those spiritual gift inventory tests, try to determine what your spiritual gift is. Those can potentially be helpful but are not necessary and are certainly not definitive. Regardless of whether you have or haven't determined what your gift is, the fact is that this text indicates that if you are a Christian, if you're adopted into the family of God, if you are a part of the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you have a or some spiritual gifts given to you by your Savior. A couple of other passages. We already read from Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm going to turn back there briefly. Romans chapter 12 helps to build out our idea of the spiritual gifts that we are given. Romans chapter 12, Paul starts off by reminding us of the mercies of God, right? He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And the mercies of God, he's referencing, really, chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. All of what he said before then. All of what he said that God has done in our salvation are his mercies to us. He says, I appeal to you on the basis of those things to present your body as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And often when we think about that, and he goes, hold on, he goes on and says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so... He says, by the mercies of God, you need to present your body as a living sacrifice. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We'll talk about that more later on. Don't be conformed to the world. Allow, as you present your body as a living sacrifice, as you are allowing your mind to be renewed by God, by his mercies, you are able to prove what the will of God is in the world. You show what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, often when we think about that text, we think about, all right, well, you know, good and acceptable and perfect, that which is holy. You know, we're presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. He's talking about moral purity, right? Well, what's the first thing he starts to talk about here as he moves on in verse 3? For by the grace given to me, I say to you, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
For as in one body we have members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he goes on from there. What is the point? He says, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God as you do this. As you recognize that each one of us has been given a measure of faith, verse 3. Each one of us has been given a proportion of faith, verse 6. God has assigned this measure or this proportion of faith to each one of us because we are members of one another. And we need each other. As we are one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one, one of another. And I think it's pretty easy to understand what he means by the analogy of members, yes? We have members in our body. We talk about the members of our body, our arms, our legs, our feet our toes, our fingers. And we all understand that when one member of our body is not working properly, if we have a headache, it just completely ruins the day, right? If we have a backache, it completely ruins the day, right? If we have a toe ache, we stub our toe. We stub our toe, one of the littlest members in our body, but it completely throws off the whole day. I mean, you're angry for like hours after that, right? (laughs) Maybe that's just me, but I mean... Like one little member of your body goes wrong, goes bad, something off with it, and it just completely destroys your whole day. Paul says we are members one of another. We need to be thinking about ourselves the same way we think about the members of our body. They're all connected. If one is missing, then the body suffers. If one is sick, then the body suffers. Conversely, when all members are functioning as they ought to be, the body is happy. The body is excited. The body is blessed. The body is able to live up to its fullest potential. It's able to carry out the plans and purposes that it has, that it needs to accomplish for that day. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, so let us use them, he says. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving... The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And I love what he says after that. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Again, this is how you ought to operate in those gifts. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I love that verse. Don't be slothful. Don't be lazy in exercising your gift. But be fervent in spirit. The idea of the word for fervent is that of a boiling pot. It is the way that we are to exercise our spiritual gifts is that we are to be like a boiling pot. The water is constantly rolling, constantly churning. We are to be constantly pursuing and exercising the gift 
or gifts that God has given to us. Because the body needs it. Another text, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Those are easy to remember, right? First Corinthians 12. Now concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, <laughs> the funny thing is about the church at Corinth is that there, there were a lot of people at Corinth who were all zealous and excited about spiritual gifts. They had all kinds of spiritual gifts going around. They just weren't exercising them right. And so Paul is really trying to correct their way of thinking about spiritual gifts. So it's not like they weren't using their gifts. They just had gifts flying all over the place, just completely out of order. People doing whatever they wanted. And Paul's like, you guys need to rein it in because there's a, there's a purpose in all of this. And if we get it out of order, then the purpose is going to be missed, right? Concerning the spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. Again, the emphasis is that we're all one in Christ. Variety of gifts, same spirit. Variety of service, same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each one, again, the specificity of Christ's gifting. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He calls it a measure of grace in our text. He calls it a measure of faith in Romans. He's calling it the manifestation of the Spirit here because it is a work of the Spirit in us. To one through the Holy Spirit, for one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one of the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now notice something. He didn't use the same, he didn't refer to the same kinds of gifts in either passage. Right? He talks about different kinds of gifts. So it's not like there's one solid list and once you write down the one list, that's it. There may be all kinds of gifts that God gives to his church. All kinds of ways that he allows his spirit to manifest itself in your life for the good of the body of Christ. Most of the ones that he names here are what we would call the sign gifts. And those gifts were operative in order to provide a sign for those who were first hearing the message of the gospel to understand that this was of God. Much like how the, um, the works of the Messiah were confirmed by the signs that he performed the works of those who came immediately after the Messiah, the apostles, in order to make sure that the church was fully established, were also accompanied with signs. And so we may not see many of these or any of these sign gifts, as we would refer to them, operating today, but the point is still the same, that God has given a variety of different kinds of gifts for his people. And the purpose of all of those gifts are really to build up the body of Christ. He says the same thing, verse 12. Just as one body, the body is one, and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Now listen to this. The body does not consist of one, body, one member, but of many. Now he's talking about our physical body here. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And that would be a little creepy if your foot actually said that. <laughs> but the point is still the same. You would think it was strange, not just because your foot was saying it, but because your foot is clearly a part of the body, and so you need it, right? And you would miss it if it wasn't there. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, whose would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And his point here is to underscore the fact that it doesn't matter how you're gifted. You don't have to have a gift that's out in front for everyone to see. It doesn't matter how you're gifted. The fact of the matter is that you are gifted. If you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you have spiritual gifts given to you by God that the body of Christ needs. Needs. As much as you need a foot or a hand, or again, that big toe that you stub. We need your gifts to be operating in the body of Christ. I can't do everything. Steve can't do everything. Chris can't do everything. It's not about those who hold offices in the church. It's about the fact that God has gifted each and every one of us to be able to serve. He has given a measure of grace to each of us. And each of us must be operating in that for the body of Christ to be whole. For the body of Christ to accomplish his purposes. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, he references the gifts as well. He says that our use of our gifts is a matter of stewardship. 1 Peter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And I, in, in all of these passages, there's no exception clause, right? It's not like you can or cannot do it. This is an imperative must. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Stewardship is not just about money. It's not just about finances. It's about all of life. And as we read the text of scripture, we will be held accountable for all of life, including for how or if we have used the gifts that God has given us to serve his church. The question is, are you serving? This is a check-in moment for the church. I like to ask questions and then just kind of let it sit silent for a minute. <laughs> let it hang on the air. Are you checked in? One of my previous work environments they would do that from time to time when we had conference calls because, you know, some people, when they get on a conference call, and you may be one of them, I'm not judging, I'm just saying, you get on a conference call and then, you know, you, you, you sign on, but you're not really there. You're just kind of listening. It becomes noise in the background. 
So they would ask us to check in. You had to literally say, this is Rod Montgomery, and I'm checked in. Because they weren't concerned about people just being present. They wanted people to be engaged. The Bible is not concerned about you just being present in church on Sunday mornings. It's about you being engaged. That's what it means to be a Christian. In case you were told a lie that being a Christian is just about getting a get-out-of-hell-free card and coasting on the way to heaven, that's not it. You've been given a manifestation of the Spirit, a measure of grace, a measure of faith for the person sitting next to you who's also believed in the Lord Jesus. It's not for you. It's for them. And the other one. And the one behind you. And the reality is that we won't accomplish, Catonsville Baptist Church, will not accomplish what God has for us to accomplish if we are not all engaged. You may be wondering how you know your gifts are, and I get that. And again, they have those spiritual gifts, inventory, tests, and all that jazz, but I don't think you really need that. You just need to get busy serving. If you see or hear a need, try to meet that need. If you're particularly convicted or encouraged by something that you hear or a need that you hear and you can do it, even if it costs you something, do it. Because that's what love is, right? Jesus, we know love by this, that Christ laid down his life for us. That's a very simple truth that we all hold dear. We understand the love of God by the sacrifice of Jesus. If that's the way God has loved us, John says we ought to love one another in the same way. So yes, it should cost you something to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not always going to be convenient. But it is always good. And whatever you need to do, God has already equipped you to do it. Because again, he doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the call. Now, we've run out of time, and I have a thousand things more to say, um, but we'll pick up there next week and um, keep working through this text. If you walk away with nothing from this sermon this morning, you have to understand that God has called you individual, each and every one of you individually as believers He has called you to faith. He has gifted you not only with salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He has also gifted you with a measure of grace to be able to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you must exercise that measure of grace. That is obedience to Christ. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you as we consider the upcoming celebration of Thanksgiving. Thank you for the salvation that you've given to us in Christ. Thank you for the way you have released us from the power of sin. For how you will release us from the presence of sin. 
Thank you for the grace that you have given us, each one of us, individually. You considered each of us individually, and you have apportioned out an extra measure of grace for each one of us to be able to serve one another. Thank you. Lord, as we go our way this week, I pray that you would not allow us to go our way to consider the privilege that we have of giving thanks without considering the gifts that you've given us in the spirit. The measure of faith, the measure of grace to be able to serve one another. Convict the hearts of all who hear and move on our hearts because you have provided everything we need to accomplish your purposes right here in the church and each and every one of us. Pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen.